Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. What, what's, the, what's the basic argument of the book? I suppose the basic argument of the book is that um, people in the West, even those who may imagine that they have emancipated themselves from Christian belief, in fact are shot through with Christian assumptions about almost everything. Uh, and, and that effectively all of us in the West are goldfish and the water that we swim in is Christianity, by which I don't necessarily mean the confessional form of the faith, but rather considered as, as an entire civilization. Well, what exactly do you mean by civilization in this context? Because it seems to me that it has changed so much over the centuries that it's quite hard to see any single thread running through it. That, in a sense, is is almost the essence of of Christianity as a civilization, because what it does is to import into um, societies and and ways of understanding the world that had always placed a premium on stability, that had always assumed that change was always for the worse. And it serves as a kind of depth charge, a massive explosion. And one of the the, the, um, the kind of aftershocks that ripples out, and particularly through that, that of Latin Christendom and into its inheritor, the West, is the very notion that change is a positive. It establishes the idea that progress is something to be welcomed. And essentially what happens distinctively in Latin Christendom, more than in, you know, in, in, in the world of orthodoxy or the Eastern churches, is the idea that, that lies at the heart of the Christian message, that you can be born again, that you can be baptised, that your sins can be washed away, that your soul can be enlightened by the action of the Spirit. What happens in Latin Christendom from essentially the year 1000 onwards is that this becomes an agent of societal revolution. Because what happens is that revolutionaries who by the standard of of earlier Christians would have ranked as heretics seize control of the most significant and prestigious bishopric in Latin Christendom, that of Rome. And they use it as a weapon with which to radically reconfigure the understanding of the role that kings and emperors and other traditional arbiters of power in not just Europe, but across the world, had played. And this sets Latin Christendom, and by extension the West, on a radical new course. So in a sense, I think of Christianity as a series of explosions. You have the the, the primal explosion, which happens in in the first century and its after effects. And then again, another really societally distinctive explosion that happens in the 11th century. And the measure, in a sense, of of how significant the 11th century is, is that most people have forgotten it. Most people Mm. don't know a huge amount about it. But it sets the pattern for all subsequent revolutions. The, the, The reformers in the 11th century refer to their project as reformatio. So, you know, a remaking of the world. And reformatio anglicized is reformation. So what we call the Reformation is really just another kind of incarnation of this this process of of Reformatio that had begun in the 11th century. And what happens with, just as in the 11th century, reformers are pledged to 
setting the world on new foundations because they sense that it's become corrupt and sclerotic. So likewise, in the 16th century, that's exactly the perspective that reformers then are bringing. Only their target now is, of course, the Roman church. And again, in the 18th century, you get radicals who start to target the whole fabric of Christianity, but they're doing it for reasons that are deeply Christian. And the same is presumably true today. Absolutely true of today. So, uh, you know, if we think of of people who are woke, you are awakened. And awakenings, the great awakenings, I mean, this is, again, one of the kind of the the ripple effects of distinctively Anglo-American Protestantism. You have a succession of great awakenings. But, But the great awakening, although... The pattern is exactly the same as earlier manifestations of this. The, the, the summons to sinners to repent, to acknowledge their sins, to embrace those who are the weakest, the poorest, the most oppressed, to acknowledge that they have a distinctive value. That process has been, you know, the, the, the moorings that had attached that to Christian doctrine have kind of been broken and so now it's drifting away. But the assumptions remain the same. I'm interested in because it does seem to me that this definition of Christianity slices out an equally um, vigorous and long-lasting strain which absolutely denies progress. Um, In the Western Church we see it in Catholic reactionaries. Um, It's very interesting you quoted Alfred Duggan being snide about the the Lord of the Rings because Duggan was of course a very very interesting example of of a Catholic pessimist. Um, in whose books, you know, nothing ever gets better. People continue to behave dreadfully. Well, uh, and and there, of course, is is one of the many paradoxes that structure Christianity. I mean, Christianity is is a fabric woven out of paradox. At its heart is the idea that God has become man, that the all-powerful creator of the universe has become the lowest of the low and suffered a humiliating death, that immortality has met with 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 mm. extinction. So, paradox is absolutely woven into the fabric of it. And of course, one of the ways in which um, in the pre-Christian world um, change did happen Mm. was that um, people would, would say that actually nothing was changing. So democratic Athens, when the democracy is established, the founders of the democracy say that they're simply going back to the way that things were organized in the time of Theseus. And when Augustus establishes his autocracy on the ruins of the Republic, he says that he's restoring the Republic. Mm-hmm. So change is cloaked behind a kind of veil of, 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 of back to the status quo. That does to a degree manifest itself in Christianity because, of course, there is this primal moment, this mm. Point zero, which is the lifetime of, 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 of Christ and in particular, of course, you know, the, the passion and, and the resurrection. And so when Christians want to know what is the model they should follow, they're always looking back to Jesus. What would Jesus do? I mean, essentially, that is the question that is always has been asked for 2000 years. And yet... It is, it is different to the models of, of, say, Greece or Rome, looking back to, to antiquated models, because there is this idea that the spirit will manifest itself in the heart, in the here and now. So it is simultaneously backward looking and yet founded in the conviction that you can get to know God better, that you can, get, you can read God's laws written on your heart more clearly. And so it's simultaneously backward-looking and becomes increasingly forward-looking as well. And that's the great tension that I think makes Christian civilization so distinctive. And the two obvious um, similarities are with Judaism and possibly with Buddhism. I mean, in, 
In both cases, there is the idea that you can look inside and find the truth, that I mean that it is not confined to the scriptures, no matter how important they are. Well, I, I, in, in Buddhism, the ideal is, to, of course, to emancipate yourself entirely from the world, entirely from it. Mm. And although that is a strain within Christianity as well, it can never entirely be... Well, the sense been, that the sense that the sense the, no of course not of course not but 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 but, mm. but in 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 christianity the particularly in the latin form the sense that christians have a responsibility to reform not just themselves but the whole of society mm-hmm. has really bedded down and so there is always that societal dimension to it mm-hmm. um the comparison with judaism well of course um because the Old Testament, the the decision that is taken when when Marcion's proposal that the Hebrew Scriptures be junked, that gets rejected. It means that Christians always acknowledge themselves as the heirs of the the traditions and the teachings and the Scriptures of the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews as the, as they emerge. But of course, there are fundamental differences. One one of the ways that 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 our understanding of this gets complicated is that it flatters both Christians and Jews to imagine that Christianity is in some way the daughter of Judaism, that there is something called Judaism that exists primarily and that Christianity then diverges from it. In fact, the idea of there being something called Judaism, which can be counterpointed to something called Christianity, is a holy Christian idea. The word Judaism, as it evolves, is mm. one that Jews do not use until the 19th century. Mm. So it's, it's it, so it makes better sense, I think, to, to to try and scrub the word Judaism from when 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 talking about what exists in in the lifetime of Jesus from one's vocabulary, and to think instead of of, of perhaps of something called Jewishness, which could be counterpointed to Greekness or to Ro- Romanness, all of which have words for them. And I think, again, it makes sense in um, an age when Jews are simultaneously aware of themselves as a very distinctive minority and yet as citizens of a much broader globalising world. To think of, of, of Jewishness in the lifetime of Jesus as a kind of bandwidth, one end of which emphasises the role of God as the God of Israel as the God of the Jews. Mm. The other emphasizes God as the God who has created the heavens and the earth and every human being within it. And in the, in, in the globalized world of the Augustan empire, which aspect of God you choose to emphasize generates a fracture from which what emerges as Christianity takes one course, emphasizing mm. the universal, and the other will become rabbinical Judaism, emphasizing the more ethnocentric. And the consequence in turn of that is that different things are taken by Jews and Christians from the great legacy of Hebrew mm. scripture. Different things are emphasized. And the different things that Christianity emphasizes, chiefly following in 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 in, in um, the path that's been blazed by Paul, will, in the long run, serve to define, I think, the civilization that we today occupy. So, what will happen to Europe if Christianity does disappear? I mean, 
religions have disappeared from their heartlands before. If you look at Buddhism, just as a, not a, as a ex geographical example, North India, where it started, it's been almost extinguished. It now exists like a sort of polo mint. In um, well, uh, this this of course is the great question that Nietzsche famously yes. poses, uh, and and very unsettlingly. And, and I have to say that. You know, all the reading that I did for this book, all the, the many Christian apologists, all the many yeah. great works of Christian literature, no writer made me feel more personally Christian than Nietzsche. And that's because he, he really hates Christianity for everything that most people respect it for. And Nietzsche's famous parable, of course, is the, uh, is the death of God. And the man comes into the marketplace and says that God yeah. is dead. And... Everyone ignores him because people can't believe it. And the reason for that is that although God lies dead in the cave, he his corpse continues to cast shadows. And because the death of God is such a monstrous crime, such a, an a astonishing uh, thing to, for, for humans to have done, the process of understanding the implications of the death of God, let alone the fact that it's actually happened, will... Nietzsche argues, take many, many centuries to work out. And the objects of this parable are not so much believing Christians. It's not so much people who continue to go to church and, mm. and, and believe in God. It's the people who think that they have kind of reached a higher plateau and escaped yes. that. Yes. The, the, the philosophers, the socialists, the liberals, the people who assume Nietzsche argues that they can have Christian morality, Christian ethics, Christian assumptions without Christian belief. And they are the real objects of, of Nietzsche's scorn. And of course, that leaves open the question, particularly when one thinks about the use that, that, that Nietzsche's arguments were put to by mm. the Nazis in the decades mm. that followed his death. I mean, of course, that is, that, that is indeed a kind of enormous shadow that, 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 hangs over, um, that hangs over the West. However, I, th I think that there is a dimension to this that, that further complicates the picture. And that is that... Actually, the process by which the West uniquely feels that it has escaped a need to believe in a dimension of the otherworldly, the supernatural, the divine, is in itself an expression of deep trends within Christianity. We've, we've talked about one, and that is the emergence of an idea of the secular and the fact that there are things called religions which can be mm. abstracted from the secular. And of course, what, in effect, what's happened with, with Christianity is that it, it, it's established itself within a kind of ghetto, which has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Um, and and the, the, the claims of the secular have grown broader and broader and broader. But that, you know, that, that is very much an expression of, of, of Christian assumptions. The other dimension of it is that the idea that you can purge yourself of superstition and attain the light of the proper understanding of the way that the world is organised is in itself, again, deeply Christian. It goes back to the Hebrew prophets. Uh, it goes back to Elijah slaughtering the prophets of Baal. It goes back to um, Isaiah and Jeremiah scorning the idols of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And in the early centuries of, um, of Christianity, it results in the construction of something called paganism. This idea that that all the manifold ways of understanding the divine that are not Christian are pagan, uh, and that these 
have to be purged from the face of the, of, of the earth. And so the great Christian missionaries, um, Boniface and so on, going into the German forests, toppling idols, chopping down trees sacred to the gods. Um, this is a process of bringing the light of Christ. The people who walked in darkness have, will, will be made to see a great light. And this is exactly the rhetoric that in the 16th century, Protestant reformers then turn against mm. the Catholic Church. And it's exactly the language that people in the Enlightenment then turn against the church as a whole. And so, as I'm sure Nietzsche would point out, atheists who proclaim, for instance, that science or genes or Marxism or whatever provide us with a kind of scientific route to an understanding of Christian morality that no longer requires Christian faith. They're just wrong. They, well, they, 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 they are the inheritors of this Christian mm. tradition, this notion that the world can be purged of idolatry, can be purged of superstition, that the light can, can shine in, that the soul can be illumined, that we can have a proper understanding of the way things are. And in, in that sense, liberalism, atheism, secularism, whatever you want to call it, the kind of the climate, the moral, the intellectual climate that is now hegemonic in the West. Mm. Again, it, 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 it's recognisably in a line of descent from this Christian idea that superstition has to be banished and that people have to become enlightened. Mm. You said that Nietzsche made you feel um, more Christian than anything else. How Christian do you think you are? Do you pray? Um, I don't pray. Do you go um, to church? I do go to church. I've been going to church over the course of writing this book because I wanted to experience what it was like to go to church. Um, but over the, as I was writing the book, mm. I have become, uh, I, I conceived of it as a kind of pilgrimage because I knew that I was, you know, rather like um, Bunyan's pilgrim, that, that, that I had a great burden on my back. Mm. And the burden on my back was essentially the, uh, the process by which over childhood, adolescence, um, adulthood, the Anglican belief in which I was raised as a child had begun to fade. There was never a kind of um, spectacular moment where I lost my faith. But because as a child I was very obsessed by dinosaurs, um, I, I had a kind of neo-Victorian crisis of faith when I was six. And I was given a children's Bible that had a sauropod and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And I knew this was, you know, huge problems. And, yeah. and, the, and the Sunday school teacher didn't really seem to, to register that there was an issue here. And over the course of time, my, my fascination with dinosaurs, big, fierce, extinct, mm. became a fascination with ancient empires, big, fierce and extinct. And I, I essentially identified with Pontius Pilate rather than with, with, mm. with Jesus. I yes. identified with Athena rather than with the, the God of Israel. And the process of, of then of, of writing about the Romans, about the Greeks, about the Persians, and, and then about Islam, mm. was to make me feel increasingly that I was very Christian. And in a sense, it was like, you know, you get an itch on the back and you're trying to, mm. to, to, to and then you find it and you start scratching it and it's, oh, at last, I've, I've got it. And so I realised that I'm very, very culturally Christian, as I think basically everyone I know is culturally Christian. Mm. But, but the Nietzschean question, can you have this without mm. belief, of course, is, is an absolute shadow. And how do you answer it? Well, I, I, I suppose, I, I mean, I imagine it's a bit like being gay and wanting to be straight. You know, you kind of try and will yourself into a, a, a condition of belief. 
the, the, the dinosaurs continue to kind of hang over mm. me. However, however, as I was beginning this book, um, I made a, a documentary about ISIS. Mm. And as part of that, we went to the front line with ISIS and we went to a city called Sinjar, which... Yeah, I'm and it was it was where Yazidis lived, yeah. who had been particularly targeted by the Islamic State. Mm. Um, so the women, famous, notoriously were enslaved, or if they were, were too old, mm. were massacred. And many of the men were killed, uh, and some were crucified. So we, we were in this town where people had been crucified, and the people who'd done this, the Islamic State fighters, were a, a mile or so away across flat mm. open ground, so within reach. So I, I was, for the first time, I was... Um, facing the reality of 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 crucifixion as it had been practiced by the romans face to face it it was physical in the air it was very hot there was the smell of dust and of bodies and of heat and i was in a town where people had been crucified by people who wanted the effect of the crucifixions to be that which the romans had wanted it, it, they wanted to generate a sense of dread and terror and intimidation deep in the gut and i felt that you know i'm not a brave person i felt very scared to be there uh, and i did feel intimidated by it um but at the same time i experienced it as a kind of blasphemy and what i ex what i experienced transcended rationality or consciousness even I, I i felt it as a as a blasphemy that anyone could crucify people and it have no reference to the christian story at all and i realized how important it was to me to believe that in some way someone being tortured on a cross illustrated the truth of the, the possibility that power might be vanquished by powerlessness and that the weak might vanquish the strong and that death and hope might be found in the teeth of, of life and despair. And I felt this so viscerally that I, 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 I felt it as a form of faith as a kind of light within me. And I've been kind of nurturing that light rather as one might a kind of guttering candle to keep it from the winds ever since. And I do, you know, there are times now where I do feel it as a kind of faith. I feel it, at, you know, at Easter, at Christmas, at the great mm -hmm. festivals perhaps. And so I'm, I'm tending it in the hope that the flame may, may raise higher. I mean, certainly I find the the wealth of the Christian inheritance, the, the potency of it as a myth, so moving in a way that I simply hadn't before I, I, mm -hmm. I, I gave myself the chance to have, you know, four years immersed in, 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 in studying it. And although the book is not in any way a work of apologetics, it's, I've tried to be as objective as I can to, to, to describe what I, I find objectionable about what Christians have done as well as what's heroic. No, I, I am aware when I, you know, if I conceptualise it as, as, as the crimes that Christians have committed, mm. I'm aware that the framework of judgment that I'm applying when I judge them mm. are themselves Christian. Mm. And that when we condemn what the Spanish did in, you know, what, what Charlemagne's soldiers did to the Saxons or, or what the Spanish conquistadors did in the New World or um, what 
uh, English slavers did when they were taking people from Africa to the New World, um, that these, by our standards, are all crimes. But they weren't crimes by the standards of people who... of the pre-Christian world. And the fact that, in a sense, that we think of them as crimes is, is due to Christian teaching. And the people who articulated that were themselves Christian. So Alcuin condemning what Charlemagne is doing, Las Casas going to Spain and objecting to what is happening to the, the people of Mexico, the Quakers and the evangelicals campaigning against slavery and convincing the world that it is a crime. These are deeply Christian ways of understanding the world and reconfiguring our sense of what is right and wrong. Yes, I agree with you, but as someone who, who studies Christianity from the outside, I'm just not sure, because in all those cases there were people just as Christian um, who were arguing the opposite case. And if we yes. look at today, you know, the, the, the greatest enthusiasts for torture in America are evangelical Christians. Yes. Um, of course. It's, it seems to me that there is a sort of belief in progress running through the book that I can't share. I suppose my take on Christianity is much more pessimistic, that it provides a way of, of looking at the world which is actually a lot about the about the the horror of it and about the idea that absolutely everything will be corrupted and all the great reforming movements lead very briskly into horror whether it's um you know luther on the peasants revolts or luther on the jews or then you take the the french revolution and you take all these things um seem to be the one the one bit of Christianity which seems to me absolutely undeniably true from observation and everything else is the idea of original sin um, or what Francis Buffett calls the human propensity to fuck things up <laughs> but uh, and that's why I mean I'm just slightly suspicious of it seems to me that you your method in this book is rather like a man shaping a flint axe. You go chip here, chip there, chip there, chip there. Beautifully, all the way through, you know, this gorgeous slalom through history, all sorts of things that you know, people don't know about, need to know about. And at the end of it, you have produced a very lovely flint axe. Whether this can be described as the sort of <laughs> original lump, I'm much less certain about it, because you're... What you say about our civilization, European, Anglo-American, if you like, we are, of course, yes, we're goldfish swimming in a sea of Christianity. But how does, how does your picture cope with the Orthodox, say, who simply do not have this understanding of progress? Well, because the book is not about... It's about I wanted. I, I, you know, about, I, I, I wanted. About. I wanted to. I, I wanted to, to, to talk about orthodoxy. I, if I'd had space, I could. But it's 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 too long a book, even as it is. And essentially, this isn't a history of Christianity. It's a history of what's been revolutionary and transformative about Christianity. Okay, so it's, it's and essentially, history. it's about about how Christianity has transformed not just the West but the the entire world. And essentially, it's the Western form of Christianity oh. that has how we got here. In fact, essentially, yes, essentially. And there's always the risk of course as you as you imply with with you know that it becomes teleological 
I would suggest that your 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 anxieties again are themselves bred of kind of Christian oh, reservations, yes. I, I, uh, yeah. and 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 this really is 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 the argument of the book is that every attempt to try and kind of emancipate yourself from Christianity, it's like being in a tar pit. You just kind of sink further <laughs> further in, and at the end of the day, how do, how how. You know, Nietzsche talked about the effort of will that would be required to emancipate yourself from Christianity would require a kind of superhuman yes. effort. That is what it would be to be a superhuman. And I don't think that, that we as a civilization, as a society, are ready to do that. I don't okay. think we want to do that. And I think in part that's because we've seen what happened when, when people did try and do that. What would be the conditions for the for the regrowth of Christianity of a Christian understanding? Because if you're arguing that you cannot have you that divorced from Christian belief, whatever that might be, um, I tend to think that it's more divorced from Christian practice and from Christian rituals. I think those are what keep religions going, not. Uh, not propositional beliefs. I mean, what? what well, but that's what, that's one of the distinctive propositions of Christianity is that it is founded on belief. I mean, and so that's one of the ways in which every time you uh, you know, uh, if if you look at Judaism or Islam, you can right. see that actually the the conventional understanding of what, Christian understanding of what a religion is, it's wholly inadequate. That religion basically is a kind of Protestant idea. I think it is founded on the sense that people. I mean, it's founded on two things: the con- the, the contemporary understanding of of what a religion is, both reflecting yeah. the, the Protestant nature of, 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 of the English language. One is, it's the personal relationship that you as an individual have with the divine. What do you believe? What's your religion? Yeah. And the other is, it, 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 it's something that is distinct from the rest of society. So that's how you know a, a multicultural, multi-faith society can exist. It's, it's not in any way neutral. It's founded on deeply Christian assumptions. And that's why Jews or, or Muslims tend to find it more of a strain than Christians, I think. Because they're obliged, you know, a Jew is obliged to accept that Judaism is is a thing um, and that they belong to it rather than to a people, and likewise with Muslims. And it's the kind of fracture points, to what extent do Jews have loyalty to Israel, to what extent do Muslims have loyalty to the kind of supranational Ummah that generates stresses and tensions within a, a secular society like ours. I'm not sure to what extent that, I mean, yes, that is how Protestants understood um, religion, but I think that for most, I suspect that for most Christians in most of history, it was what you did rather than what you believed. Absolutely. The word religion would have meant nothing to a Christian in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, the, the, the word religion it, it, in English is, is, is very late. Okay, so how do we... Is it possible to bring back a Christianity of practices and of habits without necessarily beliefs on top of them? Or do people have to believe in things which... And, and you know, what are you asking people to believe in? I don't know. And um, not being a Christian missionary, I haven't actually thought greatly about it. It's, I, it, I don't it feel that it's my right, problem. If, yes, but if you're um, right, it's a very how, urgent problem. Well, I, 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 um, one of the reasons, I, I, I have a chapter on Africa, on the conversion of Africa yeah. over the course of the 20th yeah. century, which is one of the most remarkable yeah. stories yeah, yeah, of mass conversion gonna, in gonna, history. Gonna... And 
what what you see in Africa, it 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 echoes the speed with which Christianity spread in 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 um, early medieval Europe, mm. and it seems to me that it it um, entirely different means, but yes, it, 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 yes, it matters because the world of the Bible is closer there. It's a world where demons and angels still how people still believe in that, and there are many African bishops, Af- African clergymen who are impatient with. European Christians for simply not believing anymore in vast <laughs> yeah. vast stretches of what the Bible seems to take for granted. Yeah. And But do you think I, we should go back to that? I, I should. It's not for me to say. I mean <laughs> I'm I'm not setting myself up as, as, as someone who's leading a you know a re-Christianization of the world. I think we are where we are. I think that um as I've said, that our Western form of kind of assumption that angels and um, demons and indeed God are simply superstition is the you know this is it is of itself bred of something deep within the marrow of 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 Christianity as it's evolved and it may be that it's you know in it becomes a kind of inevitable endpoint of Christianity that that, that atheism is its inevitable mm, endpoint. Mm. Uh, that said, I mean, and and so I think that that. I think that the churches in the West, I think part of the issue for you know any prospect of, of Christianity making a comeback is that I think the churches need to get back their sense of self-confidence. I think they've massively lost it. Um, in part, that's because of, of, of institutional crises, be it the child abuse scandals in the, in the Catholic Church or um, doctrinal wrangles in, in the Protestant mm. churches. But I think it's more than that. I think that, that just as in um, Reformation England in the 16th and 17th centuries, people who, who, who held to the old religion, Catholics, mm. either, either you know, they, they held out in kind of little ghettos or they kind of accommodated themselves to the new order so much that effectively they became Protestants. I think the same thing essentially is happening for, 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 for Christians of all denominations now in trying to accommodate themselves to the new orthodoxy which now governs the commanding heights of, of academia and the media and, and pretty much all opinion formers which is to regard Christianity and religion as, as kind of nonsense that you need to get rid of it despite the fact that that in its moral assumptions its ethical assumptions it remains deeply Christian and the church, churches are, are kind of scrambling to accommodate themselves to that and so they're essentially presenting their teachings as a kind of ersatz version of the kind of stuff that you would hear from liberal democrat councillors and it's just not p- particularly exciting in a way I, ge- I guess if i was you know if i was asked how how do you um how would you revitalize christianity i would i would suggest emphasizing everything that that people in the church now seem to be most embarrassed about i would talk about angels i'd talk about demons i'd talk about miracles i'd talk about the stuff that you don't get from liberal democrat councillors they need to dig deep into the fabric of 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 the miraculous of the supernatural of the wondrous because if if the story of Chris, if if the story that is told in christianity is true then it, god you know it's astonishing it's amazing um and a kind of sense of a sense of the wondrous and the spectacular i think needs to be needs, needs to be restored because otherwise it's just going to merge into this kind of orthodoxy that that that, that governs all of us yes but does this require people understanding the world in a way that is full of wonder or does it require them 
putting it crudely, to believe lies. When I, my, my fairly limited experience of charismatic Christians is that they tell me miracle stories which are simply untrue. I mean, you know, when somebody says to me, people have been resurrected at the crusades of such and such a preacher in Africa and it doesn't happen in this country because we haven't got faith, I think, no, this is not true. This doesn't actually happen. Nobody is resurrected. There is a way of re-enchanting the world. Well, is there? I mean, that's the big question. Well, I think that if you re-enchant the world on the basis of lies, then it will break. If you re-enchant it on the basis of truth... What um, is truth? asked Jesting Pilate and would not stay for an answer. I mean, that is the, that, that is the issue. I, 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 no, I think there's a very simple answer to that. If you... What I mean by re-enchantment in that sense is something much more like Gerald Manley Hopkins. You know, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. If you see it like that, you are seeing a different world. You're open to all kinds of, as it were, hints of what you should do next, of what your duty is. You can, you can see the world charged with meaning and beauty in a way that doesn't require you to believe that some charlatan with a fleet of Rolls Royces is raising corpses from the dead in front of cheering crowds. But of course, that, the, 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 the risk that um, the miraculous might be bogus or might become a, a means of raising money is something that has shadowed Christians from the time of the Acts of the Apostles. I mean, mm. that, that's, yeah. that's, yes, that's what simony is. So the anxiety has always been there. Um, the, the, the question really, though, is whether you have enough confidence in the overall theological framework to be certain that there are, you know, something can be truly miraculous or something is, 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 is bogus as a miracle. And I suppose that, again, to go back to Nietzsche, that is, that is the great challenge that he poses, is that if you desacralize the world, if you disenchant the world, mm. Uh, so that that, that that everything is purely um, materialist. What basis is there for anything that we, mm. we, we, we we want to believe because because we've been raised to believe it? Is there any reason why we believe it beyond simply the the happenstance of where and when we are born at a given point in time? Because ultimately, the basis of almost everything that we think in, at its core is theological. And I think you see this very clearly, the, the issue of humanism, the idea that humans have a particular value is founded on a theological idea. Yes. And attempts to, to, um, to sustain that idea without the theology that historically has underpinned it are, are, seem to me wholly bogus and doomed to fail. And one of the interesting ways in which we can see where this might lead is in the kind of the wilder fringes of the environmental movement at the moment which is saying actually, well, humans aren't special. Not only are they not special, but they're a plague. And there are too many humans. And there are too many of us. And we are a kind of um, biological asteroid that is wiping, you know, that is causing a great extinction on a level with the extinction that wiped out the dinosaurs. And that was kind of, you know, there's a reason why on the, on the darkest fringes of, of environmentalism, it shades into, into Nazism. On the other hand, I mean, if... 
if that is the correct view, why should we care? It's just another part of nature, like virus, like every other virus. Well, I suppose because we are what we are. We, we you know, we, we, we want to imagine it yeah. satisfies our pretensions that we are of some significance. And that, of course, must be, if you're looking to explain the success of Christianity as a historical phenomenon, the incredible dignity that it gives to every human being mm. must be central to to its enormous success and mm. its ongoing success. Mm. I mean, I was thinking, I mean, John Gray's attack on liberalism is, you know, very similar to yours, you know, the, the yeah. whole, um, we're not taking Nietzsche seriously line. And... Um, well, I think also we're, we're, we're not acknowledging the contingent nature of our assumptions. Yeah, no. You know, we're living we're living on the capital of Christianity. Yeah. And we're spending it. But the 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 interesting thing is that that John as I understand him um then sort of goes off into exactly the kind of rather nihilistic Taoism that would say yeah, well, th- this Well, I think happens. I think that that is I think that if you um I mean, I think that that is a kind of a logical endpoint, to be honest. If you find yourself unable to hold on to the theological dimension of your beliefs, that's the conclusion I've come to, and that's why I am I'm keen. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I've, I've just realised who to put up against this, this argument of yours, and that's Ursula Le Guin, the science fiction writer and poet. Mm, go on. Okay, she's very, very good. And I happened to be reading the... the I, well, I bought a book of her last poems and, and was astonished at how good they were because I'd just read some of the more famous science fiction novels. Um, and they are absolutely charged with this sense of a, a spiritual world, if you like, a world full of interrelationships. Um, and she's got this very good passage about how we are not things, we're not isolated at all. Everything is part of a web of relationships. Well, uh, yeah. So, but the th- one of the things about her is she was also very comprehensively post-Christian in the sense that she says she was raised in a family where it just wasn't a question. And she had sort of nothing to do with organised religion and vaguely comes back to see it from the outside. Um, But to the extent... So, I mean, there is an example of someone who is much more drawn to a sort of Taoist view but still thinks the world has an inescapable value and that people have an inescapable value. And indeed, it's one of the features of her books that... None of the protagonists are white, but you have to read it quite carefully to, to realise this. But this arises, as far as one can tell, from sort of from non-Christian roots. So this, and of course, if Christianity is true, it has to be accessible to all sorts of people who have never heard of it, which in the sense, of, which is in a sense, is also true of Ursula Le Guin. I mean, unless you're going to take the view that everybody whom the missionaries has not reached is going to burn in hell forever and serve them right, then you have to make allowances for for the the, the fundamental truths about human nature bursting through other belief systems. Well, I th- I, I mean, I think that, that nihilism might be one end result of of, of post Christianity, but another might be pantheism, 
And mm. I haven't read Ursula Gwynne, but, but it sounds almost like kind of form of stoicism. The idea that, that we are all interlinked, that the divine is manifest throughout the entire, mm. uh, cr- the whole of creation, and therefore every human being has a spark of the divine. And it's that, that idea that the spark of the divine is manifest in, in synodesis, in conscience, that mm. of course Paul picks up on mm. and, 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 and therefore bypasses into the, the, the bloodstream of Christianity. But there's, there's nothing inherent within a, a pantheistic belief system that would, that would give a particular dignity to humans. I mean, you could no. equally see, I mean, you know, you said that, 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 that Ursula Gwynne doesn't, her characters aren't white. Mm. Presumably that's because she feels that uh, white people are hegemonic um, and that this is, this is kind of wrong. But why does she think that? Why does she think hegemonies are wrong? Well, as far as I can tell, this is... Uh... You know, because, because we're mean, talking I mean... about Indian religions... Clearly, that's, you know, in their structure, they're yes. incredibly hierarchical. Yeah. Brahmins, you know, are massively higher up than those who don't have caste. So the idea that all human beings are created equal and have a dignity by virtue of that is not inevitable. No, no, absolutely at all. not. But, um, but I still think that it... So I would suggest, I think, I mean, it sounds like Ursula Gwynne is kind of, to that extent, shaped by the assumption that hegemonies are wrong and that those who have power should be kind of undermined. So to that extent, I would suggest that she is at least displaying a residual form of Christian anxiety about power, because I'm not sure where else it would be coming from. I don't know enough about her intellectual history. I mean, there are obviously two sorts of answers there, and one is the the reason she would give, and the other is the, as it were, historical answer of how she, you know, how she came to these beliefs, and and you know what what led her towards them. Sorry, Tom. It's, but, it's but, but, but 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 what forever. I would also suggest is, I mean, and again, I'm, I I I don't know enough. I know I have I've mm. never read her. I'm ashamed to say, but I I think that anxiety about Christianity. So so. You know, I've got the Beatles in in the book, and I yes. wanted to write about yeah. George Harrison and the way that yeah. that the chorus of "My Sweet Lord" goes from Alleluia to yeah. um, to, to Hare Krishna, um, and one of one, I think that 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 one of the paradoxically Christian expressions of de-Christianization is the anxiety that people who've been raised in a Christian civilization feel about the authority and the hegemony of Christianity itself to the degree that they want to turn their back on it. And in a sense, that's kind of Christian, that's, that's the kind of the, the Christian notion that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, absolutely cannibalizing itself. That Christianity has become so hegemonic that you've got to repudiate it. And I think that that is a, that's basically the kind of, that, that, that's the most Christian expression of liberals today. When they say, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to consider myself a Buddhist or a Hindu or something, but I don't want to be a Christian. It's a rejection of Christianity for deeply Christian reasons. I think it's got a lot to do with sex too. Ah, uh, well, we haven't talked about that. <laughs> We haven't talked about that. that. That does open a can of worms. But I think that we remain as, 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 as Christian in our sexual assumptions as we've ever done. And I think that that's, that that's what Me Too is all about. Because essentially, what's wrong with very powerful men fucking people any way that they want? If they're their inferiors, that's how men have behaved through most of society. And yes. the Me Too movement is, is, is dependent for its, for its effectiveness on the fact that most men accept the value and the truth of, 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 of what the Me Too protesters are saying. 
And again, that that is not cannot be accepted as a given. No, it's and not. and it reflects two thousand years of 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 distinctively Christian teachings on on sexual morality. Yes, it also I think I mean another another possible route. The, these teachings wouldn't be there if they were wholly unrealistic, and another possible route for that is the. Um, the existence before surpluses of, of largely egalitarian undergatherer societies in which monogamy makes sense because, well, because you can't... You well, we can't don't know, though, do we? I mean, we don't know. We can't... I mean, it's kind of like saying there's well, mother goddesses and things. I mean, it's, it's no, I prehistory, hunter-gatherer societies become a kind of a, well, the, a, a, a blank slate onto which we project our fantasies no, no. of what we would like prehistory to have been. But I think that if you look at the societies then, in, 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 in antiquity that we do know about... Yes. Monogamy, lifelong monogamy, as well, praised by, you know, as an ideal by Christianity, is a wholly aberrant way of organising yourself. Okay. I mean, to, you know, Muslims in the Middle Ages regarded it as weird beyond weird. No, I completely agree with, with, with what we know about history, but I think you're slightly overestimating the, the, the degree of our possible ignorance without going all sort of white goddesses. <laughs> Uh, well, about, okay, about okay, but 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 how but such societies. But 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 we're you know the emergence of Christianity is separated from hunter gatherer societies. It's in, separated, in, in, you know, for, for many thousands of years. It's operating on on it's operating according to dynamics and on an emotional constitution, which um, must have been there because after yeah, well, all, people it, it, do it, manage it, to be well, monogamous again, in pe- a way that. Other species, you know, bonobos just don't. Well, it, or it, indeed... it, 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 I mean, there's no way that Christian sexual ethics would have taken the, you know, taken if hold if, if, if it hadn't kind of been going with the grain of, of, of the way that people wanted to respond to it. And I would argue that one of the ways in which it, it appeals to um, to people is particularly to women. Christianity is, you know, yeah, Christian yeah, sexual ethics yeah. is kind of, you know, nowadays regarded as patriarchal and repressive. I, I, in the context of, of um, the world into which it's born, they're radically egalitarian. Yeah, yeah. And the whole, you know, the whole argument is that every individual body, because it's created in the image of God, therefore has a sacrality. And in an age where, in Latin, the word for ejaculate and urinate is the same, for men, you know, the, the, the mouth, yeah. the yeah. vagina the anus of an inferior is like a urinal it's something that you you, you yeah. know you yeah. you void your your fluids and then you move on and paul's teachings saying no a woman's body a boy's body a girl's body a man's body has to be regarded as sacred and the way in which sexual relations have to be regulated is that it has to be modeled on the relationship of christ and his church that gives an incredible dignity to women, oh. and, and and it requires a reconfiguring from an assumption that essentially sex is about power relations to gender relations, and that's why without Christianity we would not have our, our contemporary assumption that there are things called heterosexuality or homosexuality. Yeah. They would, you know, they have no 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 meaning at all. So it's total again. That's part of how Christianity has totally rewired our brains, rewired our, our brains on the level of what you might think is the most fundamental and unchanging aspect, sex. It's totally different. 
And that's why it's so difficult to read, for instance, Roman erotic poetry, because we read the, the, the words don't mean what we think as people shaped by Christian sex and morality, what they mean. I really think that, that you're not going to get there through belief, you're going to get there through experience and through habit. Well, they're if all interfused, aren't they? Yes, if you, if you wanted to, to go around doing something about reviving Christianity. I mean, I, I live in Ely, so I can just walk down to the cathedral and, and you get both. And you get, and you get the knowledge that somebody has been doing this since 673 on that spot. I think a reintroduction of the centre of, 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 um, of time as Christian... I think that was very, very important. I mean, the, the the degree to which time remains Christian is evident, of course, in the in the adoption, the global adoption of the Christian calendar. But the, the sense that the and it's renaming as common era. <laughs> it doesn't make it any less Christian, does it? Yes, it does. Actually. I don't think it does because it's not. In what sense is it a common era? Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of it's, it, about Judaism. But. It's kind of buying into the Christian assumption that yes. you know, if it's common, it's universal, yes, it's Christian. At some stage, it's, things do evolve into other things. Is what I, I mean. We're going back. To fine. This okay. Idea so you know, maybe we'll have you know, we'll, we'll date ourselves from the birth of Darwin or something. But I mean, at the moment, it's structured. It, yes. it enshrines as the pivot on which our understanding of time revolves the, the, the birth of Christ. But in that case, the, um, yes, I mean, the, the, the secularization of bank holidays is actually terribly important. Yeah, and yeah. There's this guy I know called David Turfjell, who's a Swedish sociologist of religion, um, who used to work with charismatics, gypsy charismatics, um, very narrow, fervent field, very interesting. Specialised, yeah. Yes. Um, but he wrote um, a really interesting book, which I don't think, I don't think it's been translated yet, um, called the, the Godless People, about the way, the deeply Christian way in which Swedes don't consider themselves Christian while living in a, in a society saturated. Yeah. Sweden is a kind of endpoint. It it is um, one sort of endpoint. Yeah, um, because because why you know the one of the chap you know I, I end the book mm. with a chapter on the migration crisis. Yeah, um, and take Merkel and Orban, mm. you know who are who yeah. are the kind of two seem to be opposite poles, but both of whom essentially are doing what they're doing for deeply Christian reasons. Merkel is doing it. Oh. Essentially, because of the you know she's living out the parable of the Good Samaritan, the responsibility that oh. that um, that we have to, to to help for those who may not be like us, who are yeah. nevertheless that you know they too are, are God's children, and Orban, you know the the, the great issue for, that, that's always been there for Christians: what do you do with with people who <laughs> who may not want to be subsumed into your universal mm. brotherhood? The, the tensions in Sweden absolutely reflect that, I think, and the assumption that Sweden should be a moral superpower. It's never, you know, don't really seem to be a great degree. I mean, you, you know this much better than me, but there doesn't seem to be a great questioning about what it is to be moral. It's assumed that letting people in is a good thing. I mean, what basis? That was until quite recently the case, yes. But it, it, I mean, but I doubt that, that it, you know, that had had the Viking had had Viking Sweden not become Christian, I very much doubt that now in the the twenty first century Sweden would be letting in large numbers of people into its very rich and prosperous society. Yeah, to the immigration. I mean, Tufia's book isn't really about the immigration question; it's much more about day to day life and assumptions. And and 
the peculiar sort of embarrassment felt about felt by Swedes about admitting that they're Christian even though the society is still in many ways um, more Christian than this I mean mm. in, in, um, but the I think I mean the, the you know I think it's in Protestant countries thing, it's yes. Protestant countries that 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 Protestantism kind of blurs into a form of apologetic agnosticism while re- remaining deeply Protestant I think yeah yeah no that's true uh, the migration crisis though is to, to to quite a large extent happened sort of accidentally in that I mean just for geographical reasons people had when I was traveling around there to sort of 12 or 12 years ago or so in the middle of writing this book about what what had changed um, the statistics still felt completely detached from the experience of most Swedes partly for geographical reasons because the immigrants were very tightly concentrated into um, particular areas which were physically distinct from the cities around them and some distance away and and, um, and so you could wander around the centre of a city and be completely unaware of But just have a kind of moral glow knowing that you've done good Well you didn't even know that you'd done it if you see what I mean and the, the, the moral the moral it is more complicated than people think immigration wasn't a high salience question for a very long time and it crept up and part of it was the attempts of the respectable media to shut it all down but i think it it is an odd thing for a society to do to yeah. to, to to welcome in large numbers of people who 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 are not like it because they're suffering because yeah. they are you know oppressed because they need help and i quote in the book a passage from gregory of nyssa the one of the great Cappadocian fathers, where he describes the the sufferings of refugees who are coming into the, you know yeah. his region of 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 of, um, of Anatolia, and it's like nothing else that you read <laughs> from antiquity, you know. And the ancient texts are all about resisting outsiders. It's about yeah. you know when people come in, you know this is a this is a nightmare. It kind of haunts the imaginings of the Greeks. It haunts the imaginings of the Romans. Gregory is saying no, we you know we we these are God's creatures like us. You know we look at these people and we see Christ. We have to offer them welcome. And you see there a, a, a massive sea change in which our attitudes today, even though we may not acknowledge. That they're Christian, that you know they are just clearly derived from that. That's the moral inheritance that continues to shape us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment, and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first ten issues for just ten pounds. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.